Heavenly Father God, once again we're thankful for this uh, special day that you have made. This day where we commemorate your resurrection. We're so thankful for your death and resurrection, for your great love that climaxed on the cross. So thankful, Father God, that you have loved us with this eternal and complete love. We're thankful for the love that you've also put on our hearts. That love that has a de- the heart that has a desire, the new heart that has a desire to love you and to love one another. Help us this morning, Father God. Give us understanding and help us, Lord God, not just to be hearers of the word this morning, but doers by your grace alone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together to enjoy his last supper with them. Their world is about to be crumbled. All their hopes and dreams were about to be shattered. They were anticipating a Messiah that was going to deliver them from their political oppression. And they're starting to get the teaching that Jesus taught them over and over again, that no, 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 the first coming was that he would come as the suffering servant to die for their sins. So on this last night, he gathers them together and he comforts them. And he says many important things to them on this last night he's with them physically on this earth. In our nine verses this morning, he uses the word love, that is agape love, nine times in these nine verses. I just want us to look at three things this morning. Firstly, Christ's love for us, his children. Second thing I want us to look at, our love for Christ. And third thing this morning I want us to look at is our love for one another as the children of God. So firstly, let's look at Christ's love for us. Look with me in John 15, 9. He says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Christ's love for his children is the same as his Father's love towards him in the sense that it is eternal. It is an eternal love. We often hear in Christian circles, that Jesus was thinking of his children on the cross as he was dying for them. And that's an amazing truth, but it's even greater than that. There's never been a moment of time or moment in time whereby he has not loved us. His love is eternal. It has no beginning and it has no end. Christ's love for his children is not only eternal, it is perfect. It is complete. There's nothing more that he can do to love us more than he already has. It's a perfect love. It's a complete love. And it climaxed in its expression on the cross when he died on the cross for our sins. That's why he says in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Christ expressed his eternal love for us by dying for us on the cross. But he also expressed his love for us through his condescension. Him being the eternal son of God became a human. And not only so, he considers us his friends. What amazing love that the almighty son of God would come to this earth, become a human and befriend us. 
Look what he says in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In the first century, a servant was like a hired worker. And the hired servant would live at his master's house and would work for his master. He would work in the family business. And it was only natural that the master of that household would be intimate and share secrets and intimate details and even the business secrets with his inner circle, with his friends. But understandably so, he would not share his secrets. He would not be as intimate with the servants. Jesus, using this metaphor from the first century hired slave-master relationship, says to his disciples, I don't consider you servants. I consider you as friends. And he shares with them the intimate truths of God regarding the kingdom of God, regarding the person of God, regarding the purpose of his first coming. I'm going to sidetrack a little bit, but hopefully it's a helpful sidetrack. Though Jesus says, though Jesus is our master and he says to them, I consider you friends, it is very important to note that though he lovingly considers us his friends, he is still our Lord and our master and our God. You know, on this very same evening, just after he washed their feet, it would have been maybe a few hours before he said these words, in John 13, 13, he says, You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. You know, he calls us friends, but we don't call him friends. That's my sidetrack. We call him Master, Lord, and God. What I mean by that is that the friendship is not the same as a peer-to-peer friendship. If we were to liken it, to a human relationship, it would be likened to a father-son relationship. Like a good father befriends his child because he loves his child. But it's not a peer-to-peer friendship. He's still the father and the child is still the son. It wouldn't be healthy if the father became buddy-buddies in the sense where it became a peer-to-peer relationship. That would be not orderly. It wouldn't be the design of God. Point that out because him as master, point out that it's not a peer-to-peer relationship. Him as our master, as our Lord and God, still demands obedience from us, his children. A peer-to-peer relationship, one party in that relationship does not demand obedience from the other. It's a peer-to-peer relationship. But in a father-son relationship, in a heavenly father or the eternal son of God and child relationship, He demands one-way obedience. Look with me in John 15, 14. He says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command. 
He's still our master. He's still our Lord. But because he's such an amazing, loving God, he considers us his friends. But we don't respond in a flippant, irreverent way. We respond the same way as Thomas did when he finally got it. He responded in such a way where he said, my Lord and my God. not a peer-to-peer relationship. It's more likened to a father-son relationship where it's a one-way obedience. And we see that as an example in Ephesians 6.1 where it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. That's a one-way obedience. Never does it say, parents, obey your children. Or in Ephesians 6.4, it says, bond servants, obey your masters. This is applicable to us today where we obey our bosses. Our bosses don't obey us. We obey our bosses. This is biblical. The fact that Christ has condescended to consider us his friends ought to increase our reverence for him, not lower it. You know, when our boss befriends us, this ought to increase our reverence for him, not lower it. Young children, when your teacher... Is a good teacher and she befriends you. This ought to increase your reverence for her, your respect for her, your love for her, your obedience to her, not lower it. Just give you an illustration. Like any father here this morning, I like to befriend my children. And they're still young women. Now they're getting old, but I still have a young one and I still muck around with him and so forth. But one time, um, we were in the lounge room, he was still very young at the time, and I decided to play horses with him. Because I love him, I'm his father, I want to go down to his level, I want him to laugh, I want to have a relationship with him, I want to go down and, uh, and um, uh, have that, you know, that friendship with him. So I went on all fours and he jumped on my back and we are playing horses. As we're playing horses, he's going, giddy up, giddy up. And then all of a sudden, it must be from a cartoon that he watched or something, but he, he was on my back and he goes, giddy up, giddy up, you donkey, and he whacked me over the head. Now, in our Australian Western culture, that might not be a big deal. What's the difference? Donkey, horsey, he's just playing. Playing Arabic. The word donkey, we've got a few lebs here. Do you want to just say it out loud? It's not a swear word. What does the word interpreted donkey in Arabic? Jahish. That's the biggest insult in the honor shame culture. To say you Jahish. God has humbled me a lot, but there's still a lot of work to go. I still got that lab thing. I was like, what do you mean you're calling me a Jahish? My wife jumped up, and I was just laughing at it, and he didn't mean it that way. But my wife still jumped up and said, and used that as a teaching moment. So said to my son, you have a wonderful dad that is playing with you and having fun with you. This ought to increase your reverence for him, not lower it. I just point that out because we live in a day and age, it wasn't so 50, 60, 70 years ago, but we live in a day and age in the wider Christian community where people are flippant. They look at, you know, Jesus is my friend as if it's a peer-to-peer relationship. 
Oh yeah, Jesus ate and, sat, sat with, uh, uh, ate and drank with sinners and therefore Jesus is my homeboy. That's blasphemous to say something like that. He's not my homeboy. He's not my friend as a peer-to-peer thing. He's my Lord and my God. Yeah, thank God that he has befriended me. Thank God that he's made me his child. But this ought to increase my love for him, increase my obedience to him. Not cause like an antinomian type attitude. And even after the resurrection, James, in James 1.1, Jude, in Jude 1.1, John, in Revelation 1.1, Peter, in 2 Peter 1.1, and Paul, in several of his letters, all introduced themselves as the servants of Christ. Because when they realized that this was indeed God, the very God who became a man and indeed befriended us and then died and rose again for our sins and rose again and seated at the right hand of the Father, they responded like Thomas did, my Lord and my God. They responded as in reverence, in holiness, as ones that became martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ. That was my sidetrack. Let me get back to the point. Christ expresses his love to us by dying for us on the cross, by condescending and considering us his friends. And also, he expresses his love towards us by choosing us. Look with me. In John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. We know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that Christ chose us for salvation. And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us plainly that he predestined us and chose us to be his holy children. And here in this verse, it's saying that he chose us not just to give us a ticket to heaven and in the meantime we live the way we want to live. No, he chose us for the purpose of the work that he has for us here on this earth. In this verse, he's talking to his disciples. He's saying to them, as he said to Jeremiah, that he'd chosen them for their office, for the work that he had before them. Jesus is very clear that they did not choose him, but that he chose them. You know, the same is true today. It is God that gives each of us within his church He saves us for a purpose. He saves us to change us so that we would be channels of his blessings, that we would serve him in his kingdom here on this earth through the local church. And it's him that gives us certain gifts to perform certain tasks so that we would be fruitful for his own glory. It says in Ephesians 4.11, and he himself, it's his choosing, He gave some, not all. We don't have the same function. He chose some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And 1 Corinthians, talking about the, or using the analogy of a body, whereby just as God creates in the one body an ear and an arm and a mouth and a nose, and each one, though it's part of one body, does a different function. Same thing with the body of Christ or the church of Christ. That each one, God blesses with a gift 
And as Peter tells us, each one of us has a gift. He blesses us with a gift within the body of Christ so that we may use it for his glory. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, but now God, that's a work of God, he has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has pleased. You know, it's a liberating thing. Some people get nervous regarding um, the choosing of God and so forth, but it's actually a beautiful truth. It's a liberating truth. You know, man-centered churches, and thankful to God that this is not a man-centered church, but man-centered churches are filled with strife and envy and competition on who's doing what and um, why am I in the choir and why am I preaching and it's constant. But you know, God-centered churches, which are Bible-centered churches, we rest in this truth that it's God that makes each of us different. It's God that blesses some to sing. I don't have to be envious because, you know, someone knows how to play the piano. When I see William playing the piano, it's like I'm looking at Chinese writing. I've got no idea. But I don't need to be jealous. It's a gift that God has given each of us according to his wisdom. And we rest in that. You know, the choosing of God is an act of love. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says there to the people of God, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. What an amazing act of love that the royal king would bless people like you and I to serve in his royal kingdom. This is not a burden. This is a great privilege. What a blessing. What joy to serve the king of kings in his kingdom even though he doesn't need us. That's the first point, how God has loved us. The second thing I want us to look at is our response to the love of Christ or our love for Christ, which is responsive. As I tried to illustrate with the kids, 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Our love to God is a responsive love. We would not know what love is unless he showered us with it. Look with me in John 15.9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. To abide means to dwell in the love of Christ. It means to relish in the love of Christ. It means to enjoy the love of Christ. Our God is a jealous God. That's a holy jealousy. He loves us so much. He's got a, a protective love over his children. Notice with me how we practically abide in the love of Christ. In John 15, 10, it says, if you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Obeying the commandments of God is abiding in the love of Christ. The commandments of Christ are good for us. They're not grievous. They're good for us because they come from a God, a loving Father, come from a God who loves us and has a protective love over us. Let me give you an example. It's loving for God to tell us, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The truth is, when we disobey, 
we make a real mess of our lives. We destroy our lives. Sin is destructive. But when we obey, we abide in his love and enjoy refuge. We enjoy his protection. Another example, a mother tells her child, don't touch the heater. Don't play with fire, you'll get burnt. But you know what our sinful nature is like? We're all struggle with it. Something goes into the child's head, that must be restrictive, not in those words. Uh, she must not want me to have fun. If she said no, I must say yes. Sinful nature is really depraved. We get a command that is actually beneficial to us and we entertain the thought to go against it. If the child obeys, he obeys, he abides in her love and enjoys her protection. But if he disobeys, he gets hurt. The reason why kids commonly touch their head is because they subconsciously say to themselves, this is a sin nature. Why is mum being so restrictive? She must not want me to have fun. Sometimes as adults, we do the same thing. We say things to ourselves subconsciously, or just if I worked on a Sunday, I can get ahead, or just if I can have that single life again, you know, all, all things will be great. Or just if I commit adultery, like I'll, I'll find that, that thing that I'm missing. We seriously think that if we disobey God, we can be happy, but that's never true. Opposite is true. Sin never provides us with eternal joy. Yes, I need to be honest, sin is pleasurable for a season, but it never gives us lasting joy. It promises so much, we may get temporary pleasure, but then we get destruction, it's like drugs. Someone takes it, they get a temporary high, but it destroys their life. Eternal joy is only found in the love of God. And we relish in that love as we abide in the love of God, as we by faith, as we trust Him, as we trust His goodness. He said in chapter 14, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We ought to be motivated by Christ's love. We ought to be motivated that He's a he is the almighty God that considers us his friends. He wants what's best for us. Sin is destructive. But obedience out of a motivation of love is joyful. His commandments are not grievous. Look what he says in the next verse in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. It's not being restrictive to you know, take something joyful away from us. Opposite is true. He's being protective so that, that we would enjoy him and enjoy one another. The reason why we disobey God is always because of unbelief. It's always because of doubt. We doubt the goodness of God. That's why it must be by faith. One will only obey, think about it, one will only obey if they trust. 
that faith in what God has said in his word. This is true with human relationships and this is true with our relationship with God. An example, Titus 2.5 instructs wives to be obedient to their own husbands. But no wife, understandably so, is going to be obedient to an abusive husband or to one that's broken trust. With human relationships, we're sinners and trust is broken and trust needs to be built. But with our almighty God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, he is perfect. He's never sinned. He's a faithful God. We can trust him. He's never let us down. Our sinful nature says, trust yourself, rebel, be happy in sin. But the word of God instructs us that joy and happiness are found in the love of God as we trust and obey. I love how the songwriter puts it, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. The third and final thing that I want us to look at is our love for one another. So it's that order. It's God who has loved us because he gives us a new heart, because we experience his love, and we have a new desire. We love him, and we also love one another. Look with me in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And in verse 17, these things I command you, that you love one another. As a matter of fact, in the whole nine verses, the whole point of everything he's saying is that you love one another. He's saying, I've given you an example. I've died for you on the cross. I want you to love one another. You know, by saying, love one another as I have loved you, Jesus is saying that we ought to die for one another. Of course, when we die for one another, we don't atone for one another's sins. Only Jesus does that. But he's still saying to us, I want you to express the same love, just like I have loved you. I want you to love one another. I'm not exaggerating. He's telling us to die for one another. Look with me, the same gospel writer in his first letter, in 1 John 3, 16, he says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And notice with me, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for one another. You know, laying down our lives for one another climaxes in martyrdom. But it doesn't begin with martyrdom. It begins with a life of self-denial. It begins when a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. It begins with a life of self-sacrifice. It begins by us esteeming others in the church greater than ourselves rather than being self-assertive and self-promoting and self-appointing. It's putting ourselves last, and I don't use this as a cliche, but there's truth in it. It is true. The acronym of joy, this is what we see taught in the scriptures. Jesus first, others second, ourselves last. It starts by living for others. 
Look with me in the very next verse. In 1 John 3.16, he says, Lay down your life for the brethren. Verse 17, he says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, someone that's experienced the love of God has a desire in their heart to love one another, to meet one another's needs, to sacrifice for one another. He says in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And for to be honest, this command of Christ overwhelms us. Because even though we're the children of God, we have the spirit and flesh and they're at war with each other. And our sinful nature is constantly being bombarded in this world. Live for yourself. Promote yourself. Appoint yourself. The world around us is constantly telling us that happiness is found when you pursue your own selfish desires. But Jesus said, remember, it's faith and obedience, trust and obey. Jesus said in Acts chapter 20 verse 35, Paul, quoting Jesus, even though it's not recorded in the Gospels, still something Jesus said because we believe that the word of God is inspired. In Acts 20 35, Paul quotes Jesus, and Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You need to accept that by faith because your sinful nature, my sinful nature, doesn't comprehend that. But Jesus is saying there's a, a blessedness, there's a joy in giving, there's a joy in living your life for the blessing of others, there's a joy in living your life for your spouse, for your children, for your neighbor, for one another in the church. More blessed to give than to receive. It overwhelms us. But by the grace of God, the children of God that have the love of God, whereby the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, understand and have experienced by faith this blessed joy. Just as I close, brothers and sisters, Christ loved us by dying for us on the cross. We love Christ by abiding in his love. And we love him as we love one another. But this can only be done by faith, by trust. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This time I invite you to bow heads and close your eyes for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father God, we're thankful for your great love that you have bestowed upon us. We're so thankful, Father God, for the way you have given us new hearts and new desires. We're thankful for this desire that you've put in our hearts to love one another. But we confess, we acknowledge we still have a, a battle with our flesh. And we still struggle to do this daily. But we're thankful for your sanctifying grace, your daily grace. We're thankful for your word as we immerse ourselves in it and reminds us daily. Help us, Lord God, to live a life of self-denial, to see the beauty, in uh, the, the beauty of a life of daily repentance, of daily faith. Help us this week, Father God, and from day to day, not just be hearers of your word, but doers, that we would day to day 
sacrifice our own lives for one another. And as the world sees our love for one another, they would know that there's something different, that we are indeed your disciples. Bless each precious soul here this morning, Lord God. We praise you and thank you for the great work you've done in this church for the the many years since you formed this church. And we're so thankful for your current work, Lord God. We're thankful for the elders of this church, the deacons of this church, for every single saint of this church, for the young people, Lord God, that have been recently saved and baptized. We're thankful, Father God, for their zeal and for their love for you. Just pray for your rich blessings, Father God, that you would burden their hearts more and more for you, that they would surrender their lives daily, they would live a life of sacrifice, that they would learn this, the secret of joy in living for you and living for others as pilgrims and sojourners on this earth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.